0: Section twenty six of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bruce Peary. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume five. Section twenty six. Of the Greatest Good by Boetius. 475 to 525. Anicius Manlius Severinus Boetius was born about 475 A.D. His father was Flavius Manlius Boetius, a patrician of great wealth and influence, who was trusted by the emperor Odoacer and held the consulship in 487. The father died before his son reached manhood, and the youth was left to the guardianship of his kinsmen Festus and Symmachus, by whom he was carefully educated. He was remarkable early in life for his scholarship, and especially for his mastery of the Greek language, an accomplishment unusual for a Roman of this period. He entered public life when about thirty years of age, but duties of state were not permitted to put an end to his studies he had married rusticiana the daughter of his guardian simachus the roman world was now ruled by theodoric the ostrogoth this leader had succeeded to the headship of the ostrogoths on the death of his father theodomer in four seventy four For a time he was a pensioner of the Byzantine court with the duty of defending the Lower Danube, but in 488 he determined to invade Italy and become a sovereign subordinate to no one. By the defeat of Odoacer in 489 he accomplished that end and desiring to conciliate the senatorial party at rome he called Boetius from his studious retirement as one who by his position and wealth could reconcile his countrymen to the rule of a barbarian chief in five ten Boetius was made consul and he continued in the public service till after his sons symmachus and Boetius were elevated to the consulship in five twenty two thus far he had enjoyed the full confidence of theodoric but in five twenty three he was thrown into prison in pavia and his property confiscated and the senate condemned him to death two years later he was executed unfortunately the only account we have of the causes which led to this downfall is Boetius's own in the consolations according to this he first incurred theodoric's displeasure by getting the province of campania excepted from the operation of an edict requiring the provincials to sell their corn to the government and otherwise championing the people against oppression was the victim of various false accusations and finally was held a traitor for defending Albinus, Chief of the Senate, from the accusation of holding treasonable correspondence with the Emperor Justin at Constantinople. If Albinus be criminal, I and the whole Senate are equally guilty. Boetius reports himself to have said, there is no good reason to doubt his truthfulness in any of these matters, but he does not tell the whole truth except in a sentence he lets slip later." theodoric's act was no outbreak of barbarian suspicion and ferocity Boetius and the whole senate were really guilty of holding an utterly untenable political position which no sovereign on earth would endure they wished to make the emperor at constantinople a court of appeal from theodoric as though the latter were still a subordinate prince this may not have been technical treason but it was practical insubordination and under any other barbarian ruler or any one of fifty native ones rome would have flowed with blood theodoric contented himself with executing the ringleader and the following year put to death Boetius's father-in-law symmachus in fear of his plotting revenge even so the executions were a bad political mistake they must have enraged and thoroughly alienated the senatorial party that is the chief italian families and made a fusion of the foreign and native elements definitively out of the question we need not blame Boetius or the senate for their very natural aspiration to live under a civilized instead of a barbarian jurisdiction even though they had their own codes and courts but the de facto governing power had its rights also In 996, Boetius's bones were removed to the church of St. Augustine, where his tomb may still be seen. As time elapsed, his death was considered a martyrdom, and he was canonized as St. Severinus. Boetius was a thorough student of Greek philosophy, and formed the plan of translating all of Plato and Aristotle, and reconciling their philosophies. This work he never completed. He wrote a treatise on music, which was used as a textbook as late as the present century, and he translated the works of Ptolemy on astronomy, of Nicomachus on arithmetic, of Euclid on geometry, and of Archimedes on mechanics. His great work in this line was a translation of Aristotle, which he supplemented by a commentary in thirty books. Among his writings are a number of works on logic and a commentary on the topica of Cicero in addition to these five theological tracts are ascribed to him the most important being a discussion of the doctrine of the trinity the work which has done most to perpetuate his name is the consolations of philosophy in five books written during his imprisonment at pavia which has been called the last work of roman literature it is written in alternate prose and verse and treats of his efforts to find solace in his misfortune the first book opens with a vision of a woman holding a book and sceptre who comes to him with promises of comfort she is his lifelong companion philosophy he tells her the story of his troubles in the second book philosophy tells him that fortune has the right to take away what she has bestowed and that he still has wife and children the most precious of her gifts his ambition to shine as statesman and philosopher is foolish as no greatness is enduring the third book takes up the discussion of the supreme good showing that it consists not in riches power nor pleasure but only in god in the fourth book the problems of the existence of evil in the world and the freedom of the will are examined and the latter subject continues through the fifth book during the middle ages this work was highly esteemed and numerous translations appeared in the ninth century alfred the great gave to his subjects an anglo-saxon version and in the fourteenth century chaucer made an english translation which was published by caxton in fourteen eighty before the sixteenth century it was translated into german french italian spanish and greek it is now perhaps best known for the place it occupies in the spiritual development of dante he turned to it for comfort after the death of his beatrice in 1291 inspired by its teachings he gave himself up for a time to the study of philosophy with the result of his writing the convito a book in which he often refers to his favorite author in his divine comedy he places Boetius in the heaven of the sun together with the fathers of the church and the schoolmen of the greatest good from the consolations of philosophy every mortal is troubled with many and various anxieties and yet all desire through various paths to arrive at one goal that is they strive by different means to attain one happiness in a word god he is the beginning and the end of every good and he is the highest happiness then said the mind this methinks must be the highest good so that men should neither need nor moreover be solicitous about any other good besides it since he possesses that which is the roof of all other good inasmuch as it includes all other good and has all other kinds within it it would not be the highest good if any good were external to it because it would then have to desire some good which itself had not then answered reason and said it is very evident that this is the highest happiness for it is both the roof and the floor of all good what is that then but the best happiness which gathers the other felicities all within it and includes and holds them within it and to it there is a deficiency of none neither has it need of any but they come all from it and again all to it as all waters come from the sea and again all come to the sea there is none in the little fountain which does not seek the sea and again from the sea it returns into the earth and so it flows gradually through the earth till it again comes to the same fountain that it before flowed from and so again to the sea now this is an example of the true good which all mortal men desire to obtain though they by various ways think to arrive at it for every man has a natural good in himself because every mind desires to obtain the true good but it is hindered by the transitory good because it is more prone thereto for some men think that it is the best happiness that a man be so rich that he have need of nothing more and they choose their life accordingly some men think that this is the highest good that he be among his fellows the most honorable of his fellows and they with all diligence seek this some think that the supreme good is in the highest power these strive either themselves to rule or else to associate themselves to the friendship of rulers some persuade themselves that it is best that a man be illustrious and celebrated and have good fame they therefore seek this both in peace and in war many reckon it for the greatest good and for the greatest happiness that a man be always blithe in this present life and follow all his lusts some indeed who desire these riches are desirous thereof because they would have the greater power that they may the more securely enjoy these worldly lusts and also the riches many there are who desire power because they would gather money or again they are desirous to spread their name on account of such and other like frail and perishing advantages the thought of every human mind is troubled with anxiety and with care it then imagines that it has obtained some exalted good when it has won the flattery of the people and to me it seems that it has bought a very false greatness some with much anxiety seek wives that thereby they may above all things have children and also live happily true friends then i say are the most precious things of all these worldly felicities they are not indeed to be reckoned as worldly goods but as divine for deceitful fortune does not produce them but god who naturally formed them as relations for of every other thing in this world man is desirous either that he may through it obtain power or else some worldly lust except of the true friend whom he loves sometimes for affection and for fidelity though he expect to himself no other rewards nature joins and cements friends together with inseparable love but with these worldly goods and with this present wealth men make oftener enemies than friends from these and from many such proofs it may be evident to all men that all the bodily goods are inferior to the faculties of the soul we indeed think that a man is the stronger because he is great in his body The fairness moreover and the strength of the body rejoices and invigorates the man and health makes him cheerful in all these bodily felicities men seek one single happiness as it seems to them for whatsoever every man chiefly loves above all other things that he persuades himself is best for him and that is his highest good when therefore he has acquired that he imagines that he may be very happy i do not deny that these goods and this happiness are the highest good of this present life for every man considers that thing best which he chiefly loves above other things and therefore he deems himself very happy if he can obtain what he then most desires is not now clearly enough shown to thee the form of the false goods namely riches and dignity and power and glory and pleasure concerning pleasure epicurus the philosopher said when he inquired concerning all those other goods which we before mentioned then said he that pleasure was the highest good because all the other goods which we before mentioned gratify the mind and delight it but pleasure chiefly gratifies the body but we will still speak concerning the nature of men and concerning their pursuits though then their mind and their nature be now obscured and they are by that descent fallen to evil and inclined thither yet they are desirous so far as they can and may of the highest good as the drunken man knows that he should go to his house and to his rest and yet is not able to find the way thither so is it also with the mind when it is weighed down by the anxieties of this world it is sometimes intoxicated and misled by them so far that it cannot rightly find out good nor yet does it appear to those men that they ought mistake who are desirous to obtain this namely that they need labor after nothing more, but they think that they are able to collect together all these goods so that none may be excluded from the number. Two things may dignity and power do if they come to the unwise. It may make him honorable and respectable to other unwise persons, but when he quits the power, or the power him, then is he to the unwise neither honorable nor respectable has power then the custom of exterminating and rooting out vices from the minds of great men and planting therein virtues i know however that earthly power never sows the virtues but collects and gathers vices and when it has gathered them then it nevertheless shows and does not conceal them For the vices of great men many men see, because many know them, and many are with them. Therefore we always lament concerning power, and also despise it, when we see that it comes to the worst, and to those who are, to us, most unworthy. Every virtue has its proper excellence, and the excellence and the dignity which it has it imparts immediately to every one who loves it thus wisdom is the highest virtue and it has in it four other virtues of which one is prudence another temperance the third is fortitude the fourth justice wisdom makes its lovers wise and prudent and moderate and patient and just and it fills him who loves it with every good quality this they who possess the power of this world cannot do They cannot impart any virtue to those who love them, through their wealth, if they have it not in their nature. Hence it is very evident that the rich in worldly wealth have no proper dignity, but the wealth is come to them from without, and they cannot from without have aught of their own. Consider now whether any man is the less honorable, because many men despise him but if any man be the less honorable then is every foolish man the less honorable the more authority he has to every wise man hence it is sufficiently clear that power and wealth cannot make its possessor the more honorable but it makes him the less honorable when it comes to him if he were not before virtuous so is also wealth and power the worse if he who possesses it be not virtuous each of them is the more worthless when they meet with each other but i can easily instruct you by an example so that you may clearly enough perceive that this present life is very like a shadow and in that shadow no man can attain the true good if any very great man is driven from his country or goes on his lord's errand and so comes to a foreign people where no man knows him nor he any man nor even knows the language do you think his greatness can make him honorable in that land of course it cannot but if dignity were natural to wealth and were its own or again if wealth were the rich man's own then it could not forsake him let the man who possessed them be in whatsoever land he might then his wealth and his dignity would be with him but because the wealth and the power are not his own they forsake him and because they have no natural good in themselves they go away like a shadow or smoke yet the mistaken opinion and fancy of unwise men judge that power is the highest good it is entirely otherwise when a great man is either among foreigners or among wise men in his own country his wealth counts nothing to either one when they learn that he was exalted for no virtue but through the applause of the ignorant but if his power arose from any personal merit he would keep that even if he lost the power he would not lose the good that came from nature that would always follow him and always make him honorable whatever land he was in worthless and very false is the glory of this world concerning this a certain poet formerly sung when he condemned this present life he said o glory of this world wherefore do erring men call thee with false voice glory when thou art none for man more frequently has great renown and great glory and great honor through the opinion of the unwise than he has through his deserts but tell me now what is more unmeet than this or why men may not rather be ashamed of themselves than rejoice when they hear that any one belies them though men even rightly praise any one of the good He ought not the sooner to rejoice immoderately at the people's words, but at this he ought to rejoice, that they speak truth of him. Though he rejoice at this, that they spread his name, it is not the sooner so extensively spread as he persuades himself, for they cannot spread it over all the earth, though they may in some land. For though it be to one known, yet it is to another unknown though he in this land be celebrated yet is he in another not celebrated therefore is the people's favour to be held by every man for nothing since it comes not to every man according to his deserts nor indeed remains always to any one consider first concerning noble birth if any one boast of it how vain and how useless is the boast for every one knows that all men come from one father and from one mother or again concerning the people's favor and concerning their applause i know not why we rejoice at it though they whom the vulgar applaud be illustrious yet are they more illustrious and more rightly to be applauded who are dignified by virtues for no man is really the greater or the more praiseworthy for the excellence of another or for his virtues if he himself has it not are you ever the fairer for another man's beauty a man is little the better though he have a good father if he himself is incapable of anything therefore i advise that you rejoice in other men's good and their nobility but so far only that you ascribe it not to yourself as your own because every man's good and his nobility is more in the mind than in the flesh this only indeed i know of good in nobility that it shames many a man if he is worse than his ancestors were and he therefore endeavours with all his power to imitate the manners of some one of the best and his virtues end of section twenty six